We live in a secular society. However, we may be more religious than we think we are, and not in the traditional sense. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. Carolyn Chen, a sociologist and associate professor of ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley. She is the author of Getting Saved in America and the co-editor of Sustaining Faith Traditions. Currently, she lives in Kensington, California. Today, I'll be talking about her book, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. And with that, I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is the Aiming for the Moon podcast, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please rate the podcast and subscribe. You can follow us at Aiming the Number Four Moon on Instagram and Twitter. You can check out our website, aimingforthemoon.com, for links to our merchandise, lessons from interesting people newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. Any books and products mentioned throughout the episode will be linked below. I get a cut of that, and that helps support the podcast. And you can check out all of my other meanderings at taylorgbloodso.com. And with that, thanks for listening. Here's the interview. Well, welcome, Dr. Chin, to Aiming for the Moon. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Taylor. You're welcome. So your book was very fascinating. It's called Work, Pray, Code. And it's about how religion is getting phased out by work. But not just that. Work is becoming its own religion, in a sense. Could you kind of Mm -hmm. talk about that, just to kind of get people into your topic before we go into the details? Yeah. So I talk about how work is replacing religion and I talk about it in two ways. First, um, and and also let me just back up. I really, when I'm taught, um, my, my book is based on a case study of tech workers in Silicon Valley. Um, and so I'm using Silicon Valley as a case study to make a larger argument about Um, the way that work is replacing religion for high-skilled or professional workers in the United States at large, and particularly in places that I call knowledge industry hubs, like Silicon Valley. But this is also places, these are places like Seattle or Portland or New York, Los Angeles, Cambridge, Massachusetts, these metropolitan areas that um, have now had this cluster of knowledge workers or professional workers. So work is replacing religion in two ways, as I discuss in my book. First, what I found was that tech workers were looking to their work for a sense of identity, belonging, meaning, and purpose. Um, And these are things that Americans used to look to the institution of religion to provide. The second way that I see that work is replacing religion is that companies, in particular tech companies that I studied, are are very much interested in spiritual care and providing spiritual care in order to make their workers more productive. So they're doing this in many ways. For instance, they're providing mindfulness and meditation classes. They're bringing in spiritual and religious teachers into the workplace to give inspirational talks. They have their executive, um, they have their senior leaders work with executive coaches who won human resources um, um, administrator uh, um, likened to basically spiritual guides, but that often teach them, you know, spiritual practices and help them improve their spiritual lives as a way of 
um, linking and aligning the deepest parts of themselves with the missions and goals of the company. So something that struck me as I was reading that I was kind of curious about. So I'm based in Little Rock, Arkansas, as uh, some of my listeners know. Is this why is this tech workers in particular? Is that because they're at the cutting edge of technology? So they're like, oh, well, leave behind the old stuff and religion goes with that. Or is that kind of is this kind of a coincidence? Why is this tech workers in these centers of data, so to speak? Yeah. Okay, so let me back up here and say that it isn't just tech industries. I think that we are seeing it in the most extreme forms in in a place like Silicon Valley because these companies are so lucrative and essentially they can pour these kinds of resources into their workplaces and provide for their employees in ways that I think most companies wish they could if they knew that basically what they could get out of it. Um, but I think that what we've seen here is, you know, I argue in my book that in the last 50 years, we've seen two movements happening. First is this movement, is this larger trend where people, um, trend uh, religious affiliation and religious participation has declined. And this is actually tracking a larger trend a very problematic trend in um, American society of the decline in civic participation. So people not um, participating in civic groups and civic organizations like faith communities, but also neighborhood associations, political clubs, the Rotary Club, athletic organizations, et cetera. So that's one thing that's going on. At the same time, what we see happening in the last 40 years in the United States is that work has become more intensive and it started to attract the time, energy and devotion of particularly high skilled workers more than anything else, anyone else. And so what we've seen is this change itself in companies, in company culture, where they have where management has changed in the sense that it's no longer just about managing more efficient labor, but it's actually also about managing meaning and making work more meaningful, more fulfilling, and more attractive. So work structures have done this in various ways. They flattened kind of the authority structure so people have more autonomy and choice in their jobs. Um, they've introduced words like passion mission and purpose. I mean, probably for people like teenagers today, when they think about what kind of job do I want, they probably associate these kinds of words with it, right? I want to work in a place that I feel passionate about, where, where it fits my own life vision. Well, these are words that people didn't associate with their jobs 50, 60 years ago. Um, so that work itself has changed in its meaning so that it's become sort of a space for self-realization. Um, and companies know this. And so they have themselves changed their structures so that work has become a really fulfilling place. And as I talk about in my book, we see that companies are looking to fulfill the needs, the social spiritual, material, and physical needs of their workers. So that, you know, I'm sure, you know, you've read about like Google and in pre-pandemic times, 
Like they have this amazing like cafeteria with free food, free smoothies, snacks. You can get a massage. There are nap pods. There's all these games that you could play. You know, uh, your whole social life is there. You could work out there. I mean, the only thing you can't do there practically is sleep, you know? Um, and so, um, and, and then now on top of that, which I try to highlight in my book, is that they're also trying to meet your spiritual needs as well. And so this is something that we've really seen, particularly among high skilled workers, professional workplaces. Um, and so, so that's why we're seeing this, especially this kind of culture and this kind of ecosystem develop, particularly in places where we see a concentration of these high skilled professional workers. The thing about it now, hopefully I don't offend anyone saying this, it seemed a bit cultish yes. to me in a weird way so not like, in a weird everyone... way yeah, absolutely it's okay okay cultish. i'm glad it's not just me yeah okay because mm -hmm. i hopefully i'm not offending anyone by saying it, it kind of looks like google's a little bit of a cult mm -hmm. um but is yeah so can you kind of talk about that a little bit because it you if you don't sleep there if that's the only thing then you talk about i believe was it facebook who's actually building dorms or mm -hmm. something like that yeah they don't call them dorms <laughs> they call them oh well there you go yeah, yeah but they are basically yeah it's like a dorm yeah yeah absolutely so so you know taylor i am um i'm actually a scholar of religion i'm not a scholar of i i don't i i'm not a scholar of businesses or work organizations and so i'm a scholar of religion and so this is and i'm normally i study religious people religious you know faith communities etc and so this was kind of going out of my way but here it is it's like me, a religion scholar in a business environment, and like, what do I see? Well, wow, I see a very, um, I see a very uh, robust and vivacious faith community that, you know, I think that when it comes to cult, it's sort of a matter of degree, right? How much commitment do they require from you? How much do they cut you off from other sources of belonging and meaning and social participation. And this is exactly, you know, your observation is exactly correct. It operates in a, in a very similar way as a cult in that it's a very tight knit organization that provides for all of your needs, but it also takes a lot from you as well. So there's that kind of balancing element. And I think that one of the things that in American society, at least when we talk about work, um, and and this is sort of, I think this is this is something that way that we talk about work that is a relic, I would say, from our industrial era, but that we still continue to talk about work as being something that's extractive, like it's soul sucking, it's taking up from our energy, right? But I think the reality is that for high-skilled workers and for these work organizations, they're not just extractive, they're very attractive because they give a person their sense of meaning and purpose and, you know, their community in this world. So they give them, you know, their reason for living in a sense. So is this a bad thing? Because I feel like giving people purpose and giving them community would be a good thing for society. But you talk about in the conclusion that it's not really a good thing on the on a mass scale. So should we? Is this a good thing? Should we let this happen? Or should we be like, hey, guys, you might be a little bit selling your soul or maybe not. It's just there you go. It's, it's something that's happening here. It's such a great question because 
you know, when you are in the system, so if you live in any of these places and if you, if, if you are an employee in a company that's extremely demanding of your time or a profession like this, this is a good thing in a sense because, look, you don't have time to make healthy meals. You don't have time to join a gym. You know, the things that these companies were providing are things like, you know, you don't have time to go to a yoga studio or, you know, go meditate or to listen to some spiritual teacher. So it's wonderful, actually, that these companies are providing all these things in a way if you're in this ecosystem. But I think that in my last chapter, I talk about, well, yes, there are social costs to this. So what happens when you have this organization that kind of sucks up all your time and energy and fulfills you in all these ways, they cut you off from the outside. So I talk about in my book, how our democracy and our, how our public spaces are suffering because essentially their needs are all met. So, and I talk about it called, I call the last chapter Techtopia, which is, you know, a version of the, the Silicon Valley utopia but uh, the subtitle is privatized wholeness and public brokenness. So the people who are within the Techtopias and work for these companies, like they're getting paid great. They're well-fed, they're healthy. They live very meaningful and fulfilling lives. But there's this public brokenness outside because they are not participating in the public. They don't care about the public and yet their companies and they hold all the resources. So essentially, I talk about what happens is that a companies, companies become like these huge, powerful magnets, and they attract all the time, energy, and devotion of a community. And then you have all these other social institutions that are like magnets as well, but they've become small and weak in comparison. And so they're not attracting the time and energy of the community. These are like our faith communities. These are our families. These are our schools and these are our neighborhood associations. And these smaller and weaker social institutions, essentially they, if they want to compete for the time, energy and devotion of a community, they need to start servicing the tech company. So I really zeroed in on like how this happened with faith communities. For instance, I interviewed one Zen priest and he told me, well, people don't have time anymore to come to the morning sitting. And so he said, well, you know, I'm just going to bring meditation to the workplace. Well, what happens when he brings meditation to the workplace? He needs to shorten his Dharma teachings. He needs to take out the ethical teachings because they're not necessarily in line with the goals of the company. So a lot has to be compromised. So what eventually, and we see this also with our families too, you know, people aren't operating necessarily on the time that best works for the family, but, but what was, but what best works for the workplace and for the careers of the parents and so in all of these ways, we see that in a society, in that kind of ecosystem where the workplace becomes the alpha institution, it sort of starts to define the priorities and goals of a whole community. Um, and we see then the hollowing out of these other social institutions, of our democracy, of our public sphere, of our faith communities, our traditions, et cetera. 
What would you say the sacraments of this religion are? And for those who don't know, sacraments are basically the sacred objects of a religion. Mm-hmm. So are there specific objects? That's that's a really that's a really great question. It's so funny. No one's ever asked me that question before, but it really comes from someone who's very sophisticated, I think, <laughs> in in religion. I think that um here um you know what I think I would say that there are these rituals that are really important. For instance, um, many uh, companies have a weekly all hands meeting, which is very similar, I think, to essentially a, a, you know, a Sunday service um, where the whole company, they get together and they talk about like what's going on in the company. um, And the, the lead, the, the CEO or founder is very much like the religious leader and who needs to be really inspiring and charismatic and let people know like, yes, we're going to go out and we're going to conquer the world with our product. Um, I think that there are also, as in many religions, um, in all religions, really, there is sort of, um, there are saints or there are stories of people who are models, right, for who you should become like. And so I think in Silicon Valley, that's like Mark Zuckerberg, who have really achieved this godlike status. And so what you see, you know, when I would meet tech workers, basically like, what did they do? Like, how did they get this way? And so it was not simply like what um, what kind of business decisions do they make? But what are their personal practices? So that Steve Jobs as a meditator was a huge thing, you know, that people were like, oh, there is something about that that made him especially innovative here. I mean, if you look in Silicon Valley, there is really what I would call a, you know, a, a cult of self-optimization, this concern for obsession, I would say, for optimizing the self. Like, how can I make myself more efficient? How can I make myself more innovative? How can I make myself a more persuasive person? How can I make myself, uh, uh, you know, be able to be productive, but only sleep for five hours? You know, what do I need to eat? What do I need? How do I essentially how do I kind of discipline my body and mind or even overcome my humanity so I could do these superhuman feats? And this essentially was the question of so many, uh, this is actually what so many religious disciplines, religious practices are actually aimed to achieve. Uh, The practices of fasting, of meditation, um, these practices of prayer, um, these are all ways that religious practitioners sort of discipline and train the self to, um, in a way, become more godlike, right? Closer to God. Um, and it's so fascinating to me as a scholar of religion to see these very same practices now being used in a workplace environment to discipline and train people's selves so that they could become, uh, you know, transcend their human limits as productive beings, <laughs> productive workers. It's very monkish in a, in a way. Um, it seems very like, very, if you look back at the Victorian, not maybe not Victorian, I can't remember exactly what time period this was, but they're very, mm-hmm. they'd whip themselves, not that the tech yes. workers are doing it, but they'd do it in order to discipline themselves to endure pain and endure suffering when they fasted or other things like that. 
in order to serve God and make not really even serve God, but to focus themselves on God. Absolutely. Seems to be what tech workers are doing. Now. Yeah. So it's absolutely. So this notion of, you know, you're talking about practice of self-flagellation um, and that was a form of discipline, right? And all of these, um, I mean, a big part of these, the tech workers sort of in their lives is this theme of, um, will you sacrifice, you give up, you know, you're giving up all these things and they don't use the language of sacrifice or renunciation necessarily, but that's what they're practicing because they give up, um, you know, many of them actually, you know, have quite celibate lives because they're so focused on their work. Um, they deprive themselves of, you know, healthy living, of, of sleep, um, and so many things actually for the purpose of this larger transcendent purpose of their company. And here's the thing is that when you do it in the company of others who share that same goal, um, there is this thrill, there's a drive for it, and it becomes normalized as well. It's a very killing of the flesh mentality, like um, to use the Christian terminology, that I found very fascinating. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, so I'm going to have to wrap up with the last few questions that we ask all of our guests, which the first one is, what books have had an impact on you? So... Um, Okay, so I have three books, um, and I'll I'll say the first one right. is um, it's this book called Tattoos on the Heart by Father Gregory Boyle, and um, this is just is a wonderful book about a um, a priest who leads this um, kind of a gang a drug recovery intervention program in Los Angeles, and I think it's such a it's a book I come back to again and again because it shows. Um, just the depth and the abundance of compassion. Um, and it shows, I think, a wonderful model of kind of religion at its best. Um, um, because I think at this particular moment in time, we see religion doing a lot of horrible things in particularly in our society and politically. So I, I love this book. Um, and Father Gregory Boyle is a saint. So he's that's a, just a wonderful book. Um, the other book is The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Wollobin. And um, it's such an amazing book where he just talks about how trees, um, the relationship of trees with nature and this larger ecosystem and how they have this whole life of their own. And um, it's a it's the beautiful book that helps remind me that I am one species that shares this world with other beings. The finally, the last book is called Justice by a Harvard philosopher named Michael Sandel, S-A-N-D-E-L. And um, I think this is a it, this is an amazing and really important book, I would say, for all teens and all Americans to read. Um, I don't know. It, do, do you all read The Fountainhead still? I haven't read By it. I, I don't know. Because that was like a book that people read in their teens when I was growing up. And I think that this book really provides a much more well-rounded and humane and huma human understanding of really ethics and morality and justice in this world. And I think it's, it's, it's just a, a really great book and one that I would recommend for um, anyone. 
And that leads us to our, sadly, our final question, which is what advice do you have for teenagers? Oh, that's a, that's a great, great question. Um, so this is my advice and this is just based on my research, um, is, um, so in my book, I quote from the late writer and poet, David Foster Wallace, and, um, And he says, there are no such things as atheists. We all worship something. The only difference is that we get to choose. And so in my book, I discuss how people worship work. And um, and I think that one of the questions then is how do we stop worshiping work? For those of us who live in places like the Bay Area where I live, and I think David Foster Wallace offers us a hint at answering this question is essentially we stop worshiping work by worshiping something else because we're going to worship something, but we should choose. And I think what my book shows is that essentially that when we live in a particular kind of ecosystem, sometimes what we worship gets chosen for us because we live in that system and all the rewards, the social, spiritual, and material rewards are concentrated in one institution. And so my advice to teenagers is not that you don't love work. I think that you can love work and you can find meaning in your work, but that to also think about um, building what I would call houses of worship. And this doesn't have to be a faith community, but these need to be organizations. These have to be collectivities that will pull your devotion and attraction and time and energy. And that these are collectivities and institutions where we can find identity, meaning and belonging outside of the workplace. Because if we don't, you know, what I found is that these work organizations are, have so many resources and are so good at pooling our devotion that we will end up worshiping work. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chen, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion. I thought it was, seemed pretty philosophical and pretty practical all at the same time. So that's, I think, always the best blend. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Taylor. Happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully, all of you guys enjoyed it. If you liked it, please rate and subscribe to the podcast. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at aimingthenumber4moon. If you go to our website, aimingforthemoon.com, you can find links to our merch, the Lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. If you liked any of the books mentioned throughout this episode, go check them out through the links below. They help financially support the podcast if you use that link. And... Yeah, if you want to see any of my other meanderings, go to taylorglitso.com. And with that, again, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to set your sights high and aim for the moon. Mm-hmm.